0: Our scripture passage this morning is in the book of Acts as we continue tracing the life of Barnabas through the book of Acts, and uh, we're in chapter 13 of Acts, and I'll be reading verses 4 through 13 of Acts chapter 13. This is right after Barnabas and Saul have been set apart for the work that God has called them. The church has fasted and prayed. And then it says in verse 4, the 13th chapter, So then, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze upon him and said, You are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. May God add his blessing to the understanding of the reading of his word. Well, this morning we journey with Barnabas and Saul to the island of Cyprus, which is up in the northeastern part of the Mediterranean Sea. And the ancient world regarded Cyprus much like we regard Hawaii or the Bahamas today. William Barclay says that the island was called Macaria. Macaria means blessed or happy isle. Macaria means happy or blessed. You'll remember that Jesus was fond of that word. He said, Macarios are the poor in spirit, blessed or happy are the poor in spirit. So it was the happy isle, the blessed isle, because its climate was so perfect, its resources were so abundant, and some thought it was kind of place in the sun like we would think of a fantasy island. In ancient days, Cyprus was known for its fruit, for its beautiful flowers. The island produced wine and oil in abundance. It was abundant in natural resources and minerals. It was famous for Cyprian salt, alum, gypsum, mica, precious stones, the wealth of the island lay in its silver mines, which were abundant, and its forest, its abundant forests provided ships or, or builders, shipbuilders, with wood all over the Mediterranean Sea. Cyprus was the kind of place where people wanted to go, where people wanted to live, where you could let the rest of the world go by. You might remember that song written by Jimmy Dean, Willie Nelson sang it. Let the rest of the world go by. When someone like you, a pal so good and true, I'd like to leave it all behind and go and find some place that's known to God alone, just a spot to call our own. We'll find perfect peace where joys will never cease out there beneath the kindly sky. We'll build a sweet little nest somewhere out in the west and let the rest of the world roll by. Sounds great, but Cyprus, like every place else in the world, was a needy place. In spite of people's expectations, in spite of their best hopes, perfect peace, if any, could not be found. The joys did cease. The skies were not not always kindly. Sometimes they were cloudy all day, as the other song would say. And because of its strategic location in the Mediterranean Sea, the North Mediterranean, Cyprus has often been rocked by wars for thousands of years. We hear a lot today about the so-called occupied territories in Israel, but very little is said about Cyprus, if anything. In a full-scale war in 1974, Turkey invaded the northern part of the island. They wanted to take over the whole island with a full-scale war And now there's a demilitarized zone that separates the northern part of Cyprus from the southern part. Thousands of people were driven from their homes and their livelihoods. 200,000 people in Cyprus were misplaced, lost their homes, lost their, their livelihoods. Cyprus is far from being a happy isle today, while Muslims occupy a large portion of the island. Well, welcome to Happy Island. One of the strange quirks of history was that the, the president who was deposed, the Cypriot president who was deposed in 1974, was named Markarios, which means happy or, or blessed. So it was no longer a happy island. So people still go there and droves, flock to Cyprus, the tourists do, wanting to find that, that tropical paradise. But all of this, with wars, it should not surprise us who are understanding of the spiritual realities. Even as Barnabas and Saul, along with John Mark, obey the Holy Spirit and they head off to Cyprus, they're going to face difficulties involved in the preaching of the word of God in enemy-occupied territory. Territory that is controlled by the God of this age, Satan. Satan. That even though they are doing what God called them to do, and gifted them to do, and commanded them to do, this is going to be tough. And this was just the first start of a very tough adventure. We're all familiar with Murphy's Law. You know how that goes. Number one, nothing's as easy as it looks. Number two, everything takes longer than you think. And number three, if anything can go wrong, it will. Sometimes they add a fourth one at the worst possible time. I can agree with that. How are thermostats these days. <laughs> Pastor Kent use the Wheaton Bible Church reminds us of this. He says, whoever you are, rich, poor, young, old, pious, impious, you will encounter hardships. The only time troubles will cease is when you're in the grave and then if you're not a believer, your troubles are just beginning. Let me take this a step further, life is continually difficult for the Christian. Accept Christ and everything will be fine. Sounds good, but it's simply not true. We've all met fine Christians who are going through tough times. Some are battling disease, some gut-wrenching family problems, others financial straits. Accepting Christ is no guarantee against calamity. No matter what your level of involvement in Christian activity or ministry, you will be subject to difficulties and trials. Friends will sometimes forsake you. Families will fail you. Heartache will be a regular part of your life. In fact, dedication to Christ often brings us face to face with more problems than if we lived for ourselves. If some of the great Christians in the history of the church had aimed lower, they would not have experienced such an incredible variety of sorrows and would not have been used mightily by God. How we view the war makes a vast difference in our conduct and even our longevity. Just as it did with Paul, the great missionary, and John Mark, the first missionary casualty. In Acts chapter 13, we come to the jagged edge of authentic ministry. So please turn to the 13th chapter of the book of Acts again. Acts chapter 13, verse 4. It's on page 1335, if you're using the Bible in the racks. After fasting and praying and laying their hands on Barnabas and Saul, the church release them to the work that the Holy Spirit had called them to. Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. It says that the Holy Spirit is the one who sent them out, and they went down to Seleucia, which was a seacoast town near about 10 miles from Antioch. But here we see a really neat blending of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of men. Look up at the the second verse of this 13th chapter. In the second verse, we see that God chose the men, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, and God chose the work, for the work which I have called them. God chose the men and God chose the work. And then verse four says that they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. It, It wasn't the church that sent them out, The word translated, sent them away, in verse 3, means to release or set free. In fact, later in the book of Acts, the same word is used of Paul's release from prison. He is set free. He is released. The church released them to do the work that the Holy Spirit had commanded them to do. Released them from their responsibilities in Antioch, where they were teaching to do the work that God had called them to do to go out into the world. It's the Holy Spirit who chooses the servants, who chooses the work, and who sends them out, and it's the Holy Spirit who both calls and gifts the believer, the Christian, to do the work. Turn over to the 12th chapter of Paul's letter to the Corinthians for a moment, or 1 Corinthians, chapter 12, at verse 4, page 1407, if you're using the, the book's in the racks again. First Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at at verse four. In this 12th chapter of first Corinthians, Paul is straightening out a deeply troubled church. And When it came to the use of their spiritual gifts for ministry, they were deeply troubling one another. And in verses four through six of this 12th chapter, Paul's going to talk about varieties of spiritual gifts, varieties of ministries, and varieties of effects or results. In verse 4, he says, Now there are varieties of gifts with the same spirit. Talking about the spiritual gifts that gift that God has given to every individual believer in Jesus Christ, that verse 7 says that we are to use, we are to serve using our gift for the common good, for the common good of the body of Christ. And in verses 7 through 11, we won't go through the whole list, but Paul lists several of these kinds of gifts given by the Holy Spirit with their wonderful variety. Word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing. A variety of ways that the Holy Spirit gifts you as a believer in Jesus Christ and gifts you differently than other believers in Jesus Christ. And then in verse 5 he says, There are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. Don't miss this, in the same way that there's varieties of gifts where the Holy Spirit has given you your spiritual gift, that is a divine enablement to serve him, you are to minister and serve the body of Christ for the common good, and God also gives you the ministry. The ministry is also a gift, also the sovereign choice of the Lord. Varieties of gifts, the same Holy Spirit who gave them varieties of ministries the same lord who gives them so what is your ministry you know we know, we talk a lot about spiritual gifts but i don't know if we talk enough about ministries because every believer in jesus christ is also given a ministry think of your ministry this way think of your ministry as the arena in which you serve in the area of your spiritual gift what is the arena in the area in which you serve Your ministry is the area in which you use your spiritual gift. If your spiritual gift is preaching, for example, and you are Chuck Swindoll, then your arena is going to be quite large. It's going to be Stonebrier Community Church in Frisco, Texas, and it's going to be a worldwide radio broadcast, and it's going to be serving as chancellor of Dallas Theological Seminary. Or your arena might be Cottonwood Community Church in cul-de-sac, Idaho. They call it cul-de-sac because it used to be the end of the freeway. Now the freeway goes past. Cul-de-sac Idaho, Cottonwood Community Church, in case you're wondering, is 17 miles east of Lewiston. And the church is a block from the post office. That's the arena of the pastor there. So don't miss this. The arena is, of your ministry is the ministry in which you serve. It's just as much a sovereign choice of God as your spiritual gift. And so is the effect of your ministry, what your ministry accomplishes. Varieties of gifts, the same Spirit who gave them. Varieties of ministries, the same Lord who gave them. Verse 6, there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all. Some of the translations will add persons, but it's all things in all. In other words, what your ministry, what your service accomplishes, is also totally up to God, who works all things and all. It is God who produces the results. God who gave you the spiritual gift. God who gave you the ministry. God who, who produces the results. The Holy Spirit, we see the wonderful triune work of, of our God here because the Holy Spirit gives the spiritual gift. The Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, assigns the ministry, and then God the Father produces the results. It's all of the sovereignty of God. So we have to ask the question then, what is our responsibility? If God gives each one of us all of this, whether it's a big arena, a small arena, or a behind-the-scenes spiritual gift, or an upfront spiritual gift, what is our responsibility in responding to God? And this is where Barnabas and Saul come into this. We see their responsibility in verse 4 of Acts chapter 13. God is going to lead them to a particular ministry where they will use their spiritual gifts and God will produce the results. Verse four, back in in the book of Acts chapter 13. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Seleucia was a seaport town about 10 miles from Antioch. Antioch was also a seaport because you could go up the river that 10 miles and it had docks and those kind of things as well. They went down to the seaport in Antioch, Incidentally, Lewiston, Idaho is a seaport. I don't know if many people realize that. Uh, it's, it's a seaport coming up the Columbia and the Clearwater River and the Snake. I don't know how many of those are right there. But, <laughs> but from Seleucia, it was about a 150-mile sailing voyage kind of down southwest to go down to the island of Cyprus. The Holy Spirit had created in Barnabas and Saul an intense desire to move out. And they obeyed. They took up their responsibility. So the question is, how did they know to go to Cyprus? You know, we often say, you know, please don't send me to Africa. I don't have what it takes. Please don't send me to Africa. I don't like tigers and snakes. You know, that's usually our our way of approaching the will of God. But here's where we see that marvelous blending of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of his obedient servants. The Holy Spirit told them to move out. But the men decided where to go, and they trusted that they would go where God wanted them to go. Now a couple of things helped them in this decision. They went to Cyprus, where was Barnabas from? He was born in in Cyprus. He would have contacts there, he might even have family there. He would be familiar with the customs and the culture as well as the geography uh, of, of Cyprus. Also, it had had been believers from Cyprus who first came to Antioch and preached the gospel to the Gentiles. And so there was another Cypriot connection there uh, with Cyprus. These people would have been interested, the church in Antioch would have been interested in the salvation of people they knew in in Cyprus. Because they had friends, they had families there. And so, and, and also after they go to Cyprus, we will see that then they go to the mainland up to Paphos, After Paul became the leader of the missionary team, they went back to Paul's old stomping grounds. See, the way God works, he just says, hey, let's just do that, which seems to make sense. That's the way to be led by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit may lay some need upon your heart, some ministry, some opportunity, and and you feel impressed to do it, and perhaps others join you and, and want to do it with you. But if you don't know, quite how to get started, begin with what looks to be the most natural thing. Being confident that God is in you to govern you, to lead you in that choice, and to bring you out of it what he wants, or to bring out of it what he wants to bring out of it. So they sailed to Cyprus, and they arrived at the seaport of Salamis. Verse 5, when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews and they also had John or John Mark as their helper. Again, as we're discerning God's will, as He leads us into service of Him, why did they start in the synagogues? Again, we see how the Holy Spirit leads here. The Jews in the synagogues would already have had the scriptures, the law, the prophets, and the writings, what we call the Old Testament. And they could proclaim openly the word of God to those who also had the word of God. And it was also a custom in those days that when you had visitors on a Sabbath in the synagogue, that once the the word of God was read, you would turn to those visitors and say, is there anything you would like to say? Now with Saul or Paul, that's like asking to turn on the fire hose, isn't it? (laughs) Paul, do you have anything to say? Well, of course he does. And uh, next time we're going to start to see one of those sermons. This became the practice of everyone. Uh, every time Paul went, came to a new town in his missionary journeys, he would first go to the synagogue where Jews would be gathered and he could openly proclaim the word of God. He could start with where they are. He could start talking about this is what Isaiah says about the Messiah that's coming. This is what Jeremiah says about a new covenant. Can you see how he would draw them in? And then he would say this has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for your sins on the cross. But there's also a note of obedience in Paul here in being led by the Holy Spirit. Even though Paul would be the missionary to the Gentiles, he understood that God had prescribed that the gospel was first to go to the Jews, his old covenant people. He wrote in Romans chapter one, verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. So everywhere that Paul went, he began with the Jews. Here again, we see the combination of using their God-given, spirit-led reasoning with the specific command of the Holy Spirit. Now, on this journey, we are told that Barnabas and Saul took an intern with them, Barnabas' cousin, John Mark, who would later write the Gospel of Mark. In verse 5 of Acts chapter 13, it tells us they would brought John... Mark along as their helper, their helper. And as we have seen, Mark came from a well-to-do family in Jerusalem. He had been privy to the great going-ons in the holy city. The Lord's Supper, where Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples and instituted the Lord's Supper, probably took place, that upper room was in his mother's house, Mary's house there. The church had gathered for prayer at uh, his mom's house when Peter was arrested. John Mark probably followed Jesus and the disciples out to the Garden of Gethsemane and uh, witnessed those events. John Mark would later write the Gospel of Mark. But considering what's going to happen in a couple of chapters, in the next few verses even, Mark was probably enamored with the romance of the venture. In his mind, he saw himself accompanying Barnabas and Saul as they went out and conquered the world for Jesus Christ. He probably expected to see the same kind of miracle that had been experienced in the Antioch church and see that duplicated in other places. It's been estimated by the end of the first century there were 100,000 Christians in Antioch. It really was a center for gospel, the gospel and, and for missions. And, and then there's the appeal to go to the Happy Isle. You know, we're going to Hawaii. You know, I had the privilege while in Coeur Lane to announce where the youth's missions trip was going to go one time. And they'd kept it a secret, kept it a secret until the kids had signed up. And uh, so they gave me the responsibility of announcing on a Sunday morning where they were going to go. It was Hawaii. <laughs> oh, wow, cool, we're going to Hawaii until they found out that they were going to one of the very, very many places in Hawaii where the residents lived in squalor and poverty and where they hated European descent people because they blamed European missionaries and European domination for all their struggles, everything that they were facing as Hawaiians. It's not all flowers and blossoms and sunshine in in Hawaii. Mark was ready to go to the happy isle. The olive trees glistened in the sun, but once they were on the missionary journey, reality set in. They all became tired. They became exhausted. The accommodations were not always the best. Paul talks about those dangers from this and dangers from that very often in his writings. Mark began to wonder why he'd come on this trip. And when reality sets in in Acts chapter 13, it comes with a thud and it comes in the form of satanic opposition. Verse 6, when they'd gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus. Having journeyed across the island, they went from east at Salamis at the seaport over to Paphos which is towards the other end of the island. Paphos was the capital of the island, and there they ran directly into satanic opposition. Man by the name of Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus, or son of salvation. He may have been playing on Jesus' name, claiming to be a spiritual son of Jesus, a descendant of Jesus, and therefore was the heir to Jesus' magical powers, At any rate, this sorcerer was claiming to know the way of salvation. In verse 8, he is called Elymas. Elymas is an Arabic word which means skillful one. He was a skillful one in his magic, and this no doubt he was. He was a man of immense power. He had magical powers, as, as other people saw it. He claimed to know the way of salvation, and he had a controlling influence over the ruler of Cyprus. In other words, Elymas was the first in a long line of Christian cultists who seize upon the name of Jesus and use it for their own power and benefit. False teachers who use the name of Jesus to keep people under the thumb of their control. Verse seven, this bard Jesus was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now Sergius Paulus was the man who governed Cyprus. It says he was a proconsul. He was a Roman proconsul, and that meant in effect that he was answerable to nobody else except Caesar and the Roman Senate. He answered directly to them. And he was a brilliant man. When Barnabas and Saul began to teach Sergius Paulus, they were opposed by Elymas, verse 8. But Elymas the magician, for this is name, for so his name is translated, was opposing them. Now, we're not told exactly how he went about opposing. He could have been doing all kinds of stuff or, or saying all kinds of things. But the point was seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Elemus was doing the bidding of his master, Satan, Lucifer. And there's a strong, inte- a strong spiritual lesson in these verses for us. As intelligent as the proconsul was, leading someone to Jesus Christ is not merely an academic exercise, nor is it a matter of making a successful sales pitch so that people come to an intelligent understanding of who Jesus is. Rather, leading someone to Jesus Christ involves all-out war against the forces of hell itself. Saul and Barnabas battled Bar Jesus for the soul of Sergius Paulus. And it doesn't matter whether it's Sergius Paulus or somebody like that, or the little boy that lives next door to you, it's the same spiritual battle. Think for a minute about what's going on here spiritually. Remember, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know, often we take that as whatever Satan throws at us, we can stand firm. We can stand whatever he throws against us. But then we think about how gates work. Gates, what do they do? They don't go anywhere. They just swing on hinges. Gates are the ones who are stationary. They don't come against. Gates stand against. Satan doesn't throw the gates at us. He throws all kinds of other stuff at us. He throws the fiery missiles at us, but he doesn't throw the gates at us because that's not what Jesus is talking about here. It is us as believers, his church, in the name of Jesus Christ, who crashed the gates of hell, go into enemy territory controlled by Satan. We enter into the territory which is controlled and dominated by the God of this age... And that's what Barnabas and Saul were doing. They had gone deep into enemy territory where our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the wicked forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's a lot of against, and it's against us crashing the gates of hell and going into the enemy territory. Whenever we witness... Whenever we share God's word with somebody, whether it be a neighbor or in a teaching format, whenever we proclaim God's word, whenever we seek to lead somebody to Jesus Christ, whenever we do spiritual battle for the souls of men and women through God's word, in enemy territory, it's like we're going in, we're erecting the standard of the cross of Jesus Christ in enemy territory. And we call men and women and boys and girls to come to the cross. And all the while, Satan is taking his best shots at us. The fiery arrows, the fiery missiles fill the air. I don't know if you've ever seen movies like Braveheart and William Wallace. I don't suggest you go see them. I'm just saying is there's always that scene in these movies where the armies are getting ready to gather against each other. And what's the first shot that's fired? All these archers come out in front of the shields and they fire these millions of arrows that are coming through the air. And then there's somebody trying to hold up their, their shields and these, these arrows are coming through the gaps in the shields and, and hitting people. That is our spiritual battle. We're the ones that's trying to hold the shield of faith against these fiery missiles. That is why we are to put on the full armor of God and then we are to stand firm. But such external attacks are not Satan's only strategy. Even more deadly over the centuries to the Church of Jesus Christ have been his attacks from within. How Satan gets in on the inside and attacks from within. So it's it's hardly surprising that here at the very beginning of the first missionary journey, Satan sought to derail the mission to the Gentiles with internal pressure as well. And that pressure would come from John Mark's desertion. John Mark couldn't take this. Verse 13 says that he left and returned to Jerusalem. Later, Luke, the the writer of the book of Acts, would use the word, he deserted them. Mark deserted them. He was a deserter from the spiritual battlefield. And we know how we feel about deserters around here, don't we? Especially when they desert from the battle. There was good reason that Paul would not take John Mark on the second missionary journey. John Mark had a long ways to go before he would be, as we know him, the gospel writer of Mark. Took a lot of encouragement by by Barnabas to bring him along. But we see the nature of the opposition beginning at verse 9 in Acts chapter 13. In verse 9, we find Saul referred to as Paul for the first time. Now, part of this has to do with uh, his Roman name, Paul being his Roman name, his ministry to the Gentiles, like Sergius Paulus, who was a Gentile. A lot of it has to do with Paul exercising his apostolic gift. This is the first recorded time that Paul began to fulfill and did fulfill his apostolic ministry. His gift of apostleship, as we would say. And thereby, as an apostle, now Paul is going to become the leader of the missionary team. It's no longer going to be Barnabas and Saul, it's going to be Paul and Barnabas. Because if you're an apostle and fulfilling your gift, of course you're going to be the leader of of the missionary team. In other words, Paul has come fully into the arena of his ministry and his calling to the Gentiles. In other words, he's fulfilling his gift of apostleship in the arena that God has set for him, and then God is going to bring forth the results. Verse 9, but Saul, who is also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze upon him and said, you are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, The hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Now, we need to be clear about a couple of things here, because in verse 10, through discerning and knowing God's word, any one of us filled with the Holy Spirit could look at somebody, and if this was true, say, you're full of deceit. You're a fraud. You're the son of the devil, okay? Verse 11, we find something a little bit different here because in verse 11, Paul is exercising his gift as an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's similar to when the apostle Peter caught Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 in a lie against the Holy Spirit. And what happened to them? They fell down dead and great fear came upon all those who heard it. Peter was exercising his gift of apostleship. For the first time, with Paul's words to Elamus, he exercised his God-given authority and gift as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Having obeyed the Spirit of God by going to Cyprus and doing what God had called him to do, Paul was led by the Spirit of God into that greater ministry that God had for him as the apostle to the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit gives the spiritual gift, the Lord Jesus Christ assigns the ministry, and God the Father produces the results. In verse 12, we see the results in the response of Sergius Paulus. We saw what the results were in in Elemas, but also what Paul's words as he proclaimed the word of God to Sergius Paulus. Verse 12, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Yeah, he, 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 he was amazed and he believed and he saw what happened with Elemas, but it was the teaching of the Lord that brought him to faith in Jesus Christ. This is the first Roman ruler to come to faith in Jesus, the first. We know about Sergius Paulus from archaeology and history. On the island of Cyprus, they've discovered stone carvings with Sergius Paulus' name in them on Cyprus. We know that He was there at the right time, we know what his position was. But Sir William M. Ramsey also discovered evidence that the proconsul did indeed receive Jesus Christ and that he and his family were active and influential in the church on Cyprus. And that they were also influential on the mainland in another city called Antioch. In a few more verses, we come to Pisidian Antioch, which is not Antioch in Syria, but this is Antioch up in Asia Minor, a town called Pisidian Antioch, where we read from ancient documents that Sergius Paulus' grandson was also a believer, and his grandson was the first Christian to be in the Roman Senate in Rome. Talk about influence from here to the city in Antioch to Rome, a Christian in the Senate. But how did all of this affect John Mark? Verse 13, we hate to end on a negative, but that's where we come to at this point. And life is like that, didn't we say? Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. But John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. The realities of missionary life were too much for John Mark. He had inwardly romanticized the ministry they were undertaking, but reality had smashed his dreams. First came the disappointment of the seeming ineffectiveness of this initial ministry. There had been one convert, but what a price had been paid for that. Now they were setting sail from the sunny shores of Cyprus to the ominous cliffs at Perga, 175 sea miles away. In fact, they are going to a region of the world where Alexander the Great, after traveling the entire known world, said, this is the worst place I have ever been to. (laughs) Because of the cliffs, the mountain passes, the bandits... Everything that was at this, you know, you could just be going along on this path up a mountain pass and a big cliff on the side, and all of a sudden the ground gives way underneath you. And everything's everything's gone. It's just horrible. The weather was horrible. Malaria was in the reason. It was a horrible place. And that may have been part of the problem that John Mark left as well because... There may have been sickness along the way because Paul said that he did not preach in Pamphylia, but he went on to Galatia. And he wrote in Galatians 4.13, as you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. So Paul got some, he, he got sick. You know, you're John Mark, it hasn't been going well, now all of a sudden Paul is sick. Well, what are you going to do? Paul probably got Malaria and he moved to a safer climate in Galatia, John Mark went home. All of this combined with John Mark's privileged upbringing was simply too much for the young man, so he went home. Later, Barnabas would beautifully redeem him for ministry, but for the time being, Paul considered him a deserter. John Mark was a wonderful young man, but at this point in his life, he was the victim of his own uninformed, idealistic expectations a casualty of spiritual warfare. He did not understand the realities of the spiritual warfare they faced. And the question is, do we? Do we? Enemy territory is right outside these doors. And in our nation, Satan is gaining more and more ground in an exponential rate. The church is being more and more marginalized. And Christianity is becoming more and more criminalized. Elamus the skillful one, if we can use that name, Elamus is on the news. He's in the movies. He's on TV. He controls the halls of power in our land. He's doing five or six talk shows this morning on, on TV. He teaches in our schools. Isn't it, isn't it interesting that all of those political shows, Face the Nation, and, and all of those are on Sunday morning when the Christians are someplace else, and he seems to have most people convinced that they can reject Christ altogether, do their own thing, or has people convinced that they can marginalize the church of Jesus Christ to the extreme fringes. You ever heard that word, extremist, lately? of this happy isle we call America, that they have a view of what they want America to be, and that the church is only important when it's convenient. And it's only important when it goes along with what you think is important. So what does our response need to be during these days? And I can tell a lot of you are thinking during these last days. Add that, Pastor. (laughs) During these last days. And it is this if we do not crash the gates of hell and enter into the territory of the enemy if we do not come alongside families in our community and help them in their faith and their commitment to jesus christ and bring them into fellowship with us where they are being taught the word of god as a priority in their lives and they are making Christ and his church the priority of their family where he is Lord of the home, and where they are worshiping, serving together as a family in this church, then in these last days we will stand by and witness a battlefield of spiritual casualties that will be beyond measure. Our community is filled with people and families who don't have a clue that they are in fact dominated and controlled by the God of this age. And unless we reach them, they will go the way of the God of this age. Shall we? Father, I do pray that you'd open up to our hearts and to our minds to those ministries, to those people, to those places, Lord, that we would be released, sent by the Holy Spirit to go. Father, each one of us here has knows different people and lives in a different neighborhood in our community and in the the Treasure Valley. Interesting, we call it the Valley of Plenty in the Treasure Valley. Sounds a whole lot like Happy Isle to me. But Lord, I pray that you would just impress upon our hearts and our minds where you are sending each one of us or sending us as a church, as a body, that we might reach those with whom we come in contact, those that we love, and those that we know. That we might reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they might believe like Sergius Paulus, and that they might commit their lives and their hearts and their families to Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen.